0: The challenges Facing Elbow's Parliament Half of Australia has had COVID Morrison AWOL and Bison are back. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host Ben Davison and joining me from the Harbour City, which is no longer the de facto capital of Australia, Thanks to Prime Minister Albanese, moving back into the Lodge, is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults.
1: A book you should totally buy. Or borrow from your library, either is fine.
0: Guardian columnist and my wife, Van badham How are you, Van? Eager to get into the, on the show, I can see today.
1: Yes, I'm super eager. You can, you can see I'm wearing my favourite power pink shirt. <laughs> Absolutely, dying to get into it. Ben and I have a little video connection, uh, and it is truly the highlight of my time away when I'm in Sydney with Mum and he's back in Victoria for us to do this podcast together and see one another's cute little face.
0: That's right, and of course, it is an auspicious week. We are we are recording early this week, but the forty seventh Parliament of Australia has started sitting. And, of course, we now have a Labor Speaker of the House, a Labor President of the Senate.
1: Comrade Sue Lyons, good left-wing woman from the beautiful state of Western Australia, is now President of the Senate, and this is just awesome news.
0: Uh, We should also give a shout-out to Milton Dick, who is, of course, the best-named politician ever to emerge from Queensland to sit in the Speaker's chair. He's a
1: great pick as Speaker, because I believe he... In a Parliament of Giants, he's quite competitive, I believe.
0: He is very tall. I think he and the member for Hunter could have a, a height off contest. And the
1: member for McNamara, who is something of a basketballer, as it turns out, Josh Burns, Dan Rapaccioli and Milton Deke, bringing the extremely tall element to the Parliament.
0: Labor will win the uh, Labor parliamentary basketball matches for the next term. That's for sure, but of course, most importantly, Van sitting on the Treasury benches, the benches of government, is a Labor Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, who, during the smoking ceremony in the welcome to country that happened yesterday, the first day of a new parliamentary sitting, is uh, full of ceremony. Uh, he did he did get quite emotional about the responsibility that Labor has uh, and that all parliamentarians really have to the nation. Uh, to, to get things done, to, to, to make a positive change, didn't he?
1: Yeah, I mean, he made that point in his speech and he did get very emotional. I mean, you've got to imagine, like, this is a kid who grew up with a single mother in public housing, right? Like, yeah. the odds were against Albanese at the beginning of his life and for him to become Prime Minister and to know on such a visceral personal level the absolute transformative opportunities that are provided to people by government policy through things like what we used to call the five pillars of the welfare state and hopefully under a labor government we'll talk about more again the five pillars of the welfare state let's rattle them off they are public housing which also an amenity which includes natural environment healthcare education the care of the elderly and unemployment support services. These are what the welfare welfare state is made of. This is what Labor governments traditionally champion and this is what literally provided the avenues in life that enabled someone like Anthony Albanese to become Prime Minister. So you can imagine him saying, you know, are we going to do things that will receive praise or are we going to do things that we will hold on to with regret? Is really... I mean, that's really profound because the forces of global capitalism, and we cannot understate this enough, are somewhat arraigned against labour governments. Mm -hmm. Like in a capitalist system where profit depends and, yes, let's get very basic Marxist around this, on the exploitation of labour, that you work for me and I will pay you less than what you're worth because I will take a profit and then use it to spend on super yachts and whatever rich people do. Like, to be the worker in that system that goes, actually, I want power within this dynamic, I will join a trade union and form a labour movement of trade unions, I will create a political party to represent the interests of working people, and we will pursue government in a democracy that is a challenge to the very, you know, the, the bricolage of exploitation mm. of which capitalism depends. And, and of that's course, why the forces of reaction are always so aggressively in pursuit of Labor governments.
0: And, of course, Van, you, you know, if you're listening to this, uh, you can join your union online right now while you listen to us at australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W. Uh, and there's lots of good reasons to join your union, not least of which we've discussed in the past union members get paid more, they have more secure employment, they have safer workplaces, and, of course, now we have a Labor government, you're seeing people like Tony Burke, the Minister for Workplace Relations, encouraging people to join the union. You're hearing people like Anthony Albanese, the Prime Minister, encouraging people to join the union because the reality is, as you say, the forces of global capital uh, are arrayed against Labor because the 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 consensus position, the entrenched position, the infiltrated position of economics in our system is is a Friedmanite system. It's not a Marxist system. It's not a a welfare state system. It's not a social democratic system. In some countries it is, like in Scandinavia. But this Milton Friedman ideology that, as one economist described to me, has no empirical basis, so it has no evidence, is still driving economic policy.
1: Yeah. And And,
0: and can you talk to us about, because people people might hear me say Milton Friedman and go, I don't even know what that is. So, you know, can you break down for us just, like, what is Milton Friedman ideology and how has it come to be?
1: Okay, so Milton Friedman is an American economist who is a radical, like he is a radical right-wing guy, all right? I just want to foreground this by saying that, At the time that he emerged in the sort of post-Second World War period, period, other economists was like, this dude's a right-wing loon, okay? That was the consensus. And he supported all kinds of nasty things and had no problems with dictatorships and, you know, went to South Africa and was like, oh, look, how bad is apartheid really? So his theory is of Milton Friedmanite free market economics, very convenient for capitalists is that, well, we should just let the market determine the allocation of resources. You know, government's building welfare states. No, 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 no. We want small government. We just want government to sort of run a defence force and let business do whatever it wants, because people will make purchasing decisions, and that determines where resources shall go. So we don't need to build trains, for example, if nobody really wants to uh, ride them. So people aren't um, building their own train networks with their capitalist investment money and, you know, paying as customers to ride trains. Well, we don't really need to build any. Like it's absolute loon kind of, it is really loon kind of stuff. And the famous example that we use to explain Friedman's literal worldview was that in Capitalism and Friedman? he opposes the concept of medical licensing. Like, he doesn't think that there should be a licensing and registration process for doctors. Because if a doctor is performing a poor service, then people just won't go. They'll literally take their consumer power somewhere else to a doctor who won't kill them. And it's like, yeah, no, that's not how you run a society. That's how you run a horror movie. And yet, capitalism, freedom—the book, Friedman, capitalism and freedom, capitalism, freedom—the book that literally contains this example of total crazy nonsense—was held up in lieu of a Bible by our friend Tim Wilson, the former um, MP for Goldstein in Victoria, who very fortunately lost his seat to Zoe Daniel. Um, mm. As instead of a Bible, when he was sworn into Parliament. That's what Friedmanite economics is. It's all about the power of the market and obviously has been championed by capital interest, corporations and the think tanks that they used to do their policy work for them, like the IPA, like the Centre for Independent Studies, who actually toured Milton Friedman to Australia in the 70s. And that's that's basically the framework of who Friedman is.
0: Well, Well, and it's interesting because fundamentally, Friedmanite economics only exists through imposition by institutions. Yes. So, so this is the great irony of Friedman's position, is that it's only through the imposition of policy by institutions like the Reserve Bank, like the Department of Treasury, like the Federal Reserve in the US, that that shapes and and subscribes to the monetarist theory of Friedman, which basically says that, uh, if you control the supply of money in and out of the economy you can you can effectively regulate inflation and if you regulate inflation then ultimately people will be able to make those purchasing decisions on a more secure basis and oh.
1: It is amazing. And it's been economic orthodoxy in this country for more than 40 years. And I just want people to get the sort of political relationships here. So you have capital interest corporations pump money into think tanks like the IPA and the Centre for Independent Studies and a whole bunch of these think tanks throughout the world, right? Those think tanks provide documents and lecture tours and they capture, on that side, um, conservative uh, politicians, smaller liberal politicians, centrist politicians, and they take them on courses and whatever and tell them mm. this orthodoxy. In the 1970s, Malcolm Fraser, who was Prime Minister of this country, sacked a bunch of economists from the Treasury mm. uh, who were Keynesians, who were welfare state economists, and brought in a bunch of Keynesians. And essentially Treasuries had this... Uh, um, Friedmanites rather, and essentially, treasury's had this Friedmanite focus ever since.
0: And I think, then, the the impact now, of course, is that inflation is going up. So, you know, we've had a long period of low inflation and low interest rates in Australia and the Western world. Now, inflation is going up, and these Friedmanites are, are demanding that interest rates go up as well. And I think it's it's really telling that they rely on something called a Phillips curve, which is basically a a make-believe graph that purports to say there's a relationship between uh, interest rates, uh, inflation and and unemployment. Basically, it says that if you have uh, lower unemployment, you'll have higher inflation because workers will have to be paid more because of skill shortages. What all of this ignores is the power dynamic Between people and corporations, between corporations and government, government and people. It it, it just doesn't take into account any of it. Because if it did, we would know, we would be able to see quite clearly that these things are not real. That the so-called natural rate of unemployment that's required to keep inflation low, to keep the economy stable, is a nonsense. And in fact, has always been a nonsense. And no one can ever tell you what that rate should be. And it changes if they, even if they do tell you, it changes because fundamentally, fundamentally, it's all about trying to keep prices low, keep wage demands low and keep profits high. So even now, while we have high inflation uh, and even now, while the Reserve Bank is trying to jack up interest rates, in, supposedly to bring down inflation, corporations are very profitable. We, we have a profit reporting season in the US at the moment. And profits in, for many corporations are at record levels. We've talked on this show recently about how uh, CEOs and uh, executives are getting record bonuses. Uh, unemployment is very, very low, but wages are not skyrocketing. Wages are not spiralling because there is still a power imbalance. And, and you know, Van, there was a conversation yesterday with, a, with an economist who said he believed in Friedmanite monetary policy uh, despite there being Uh, no empirical evidence for it from the last 40 years Uh, and that somehow or another we had to create more unemployment in order to bring down inflation.
1: Oh, this is always the solution to everything is more unemployment, right? Because more unemployment, the reason why Friedmanites and the capitalists who sponsor them love um, unemployment is unemployment means that you create a labour pool of people who desperately do not want to be unemployed. Then you make unemployment so punitive and awful and shameful and terrible through things like, you know, mutual obligations that are exploitative and, and appalling like uh, unemployment payments. And that means that people who are terrified of unemployment because it's so awful will not join unions or put in wage demands or actually exert any of their labour power. And it's a capitalist trick. Like it is literally a trick by the devil to talk you out of doing anything in your own interest. Oh, don't ask for more money even though you're worth it because what if you lose your job and you have to join, you know, like these terrible unbossed masses in the Centrelink queue, and that's one of the reasons why they also try to make the state of being unemployed so punitive and awful. Marx called it um, the reserve army of labour. That and Marx identified it when he was, you know, writing the best analysis of capitalist economies, which he knew mm-hmm. quite a bit about, um, saying that it absolutely the model of exploitation depends on a humiliated unemployed.
0: And I think this is the this is the fundamental challenge that underpins Labor uh, and and its government at a federal level is how how does Labor wrestle with this serpent? Because for 40 years, it has been wrapped around our institutions, our economic thinkers, uh, everything from the Reserve Bank through our universities, through our think tanks, through our major corporations, have this view that you have to have higher interest rates and more unemployed people in order to control inflation. When we know, we actually know, empirically know, that the reason for high inflation at the moment is a supply side crisis, by which I mean, there is not enough supply of energy, there is not enough supply of food. This is not uh, a demand side issue. It's not that workers are, spe- you know, spending money recklessly. In fact, capitalists have been spending money recklessly. This has been part of the problem. You know, we pumped money into the economy during the pandemic to try and keep things going, and capitalists wasted it. They created Afterpay and and Uber and all these unicorn companies that have never turned a profit, right? But have wasted billions of dollars. And now, what? the Friedmanites, who run central banks around the world want to do is restrict that supply of money to the point where companies will sack people rather than have lower profits. Now, that is the fundamental problem. It it is not about reducing inflation at all. It's about how they prop up profits. So really what they're trying to do is lift interest rates to the point where companies will reduce their workforce in order to stay profitable. Of course, the knock-on effect, when you think about the macro picture, is that unemployed people spend less money in the economy. Unemployed people, uh, you know, have create a whole series of of mental health issues, of social issues. Uh, It creates more strain on the state because we have to make sure people don't starve. And it is a fundamental flaw in this concept that oh well we'll just drive a bunch of businesses out of business or force them to sack people to stay profitable well what's going to happen when those people don't spend money it creates a negative recession cycle
1: we're already seeing this so when um, because we know that prices are going up on essential things like food which is genuinely terrifying We know that when that happens, people stop um, uh, patronising retail and hospitality establishments. Retail and hospitality—that's the major and services—that's the majority of small business. Dear small business people, please pay attention to Ben and I because we're into you. We think that enterprise is good. We think that services should exist, and that there is space in the economy for enterprise business provision of of goods all of those things should exist right democratic socialists do not believe in some kind of orwellian totalitarian everybody you know drinks from the same cup and wears overalls everywhere even though personally i'm very pro overalls like that's that's not where we're at we're saying that the biggest threat to your small business is actually the lunacy of major multinational corporate funded think tanks with their claws, their serpent's tail, wrapped around universities and treasuries and economic advisory. And I just want to put this in historical context very briefly again. People who are like, oh, Keating and Hawke under their governments, they privatised Qantas, which they shouldn't have done, the CBA and all these things. Why did they do that? They did that because they inherited a treasury from Malcolm Fraser, the Liberal Prime Minister, that was full of Friedmanites. And the advice they consistently received from every institution, universities, you know, like the media, everyone was that this is how you did economics. Like this was how economies, if you reshaped an economy in a Friedman-esque way, that prosperity would flow and everybody would get what they wanted. This was what, orthodoxy at the time.
0: What What's really pleasing, Van, is can I just say, you know, Tony Burke's appearance on Insiders on Sunday, and I talked about that in the weekend wrap, but the the language coming out of the Albanese government, the Labor government, is about how we improve wages and job security in Australia. It's not, yes, it says there is a cost of living challenge, but they're not framing it through a freemanite lens about a, an inflation challenge or a, uh, an interest rates challenge. It's a cost of living challenge. And I think that's actually, while it's a small point of difference in language, it has a big impact. Because oh. if you think about these things as cost of living, and you think about these things as the impact on people rather than corporate profits, and you go, the, the issue here is not is uh, <laughs> not discretionary spending. It's, as you just said, the cost of everyday living items is going up, then we do need to focus on how do we improve wages? How do we lift skills? How do we make uh, companies more productive, Uh, not just the workforce, but the companies themselves? Uh, And how do we improve participation? Women's participation, Australians with, with disabilities participating, Indigenous Australians participating, everybody being able to participate in the economy. And that full employment is a good thing. Full
1: employment is a great thing and full employment was the great legacy of the Curtin government during the Second World War where they legislated that it was the government's responsibility to make sure people were gainfully and productively employed in the workforce at all times and can we just fly the flag for the fact that Albanese has acknowledged that Curtin is his hero and that he is inspired by the work of the Curtin government. And can I just say, that's the best economic conversation we've had in this country in 40 years.
0: Yeah, absolutely agree. I mean, you look at what's on the agenda for this first sitting of parliament, you know, I believe today uh, on Wednesday, the 27th of July, they're going to introduce legislation to establish Skills Australia that will fundamentally move us from the last decade where we have been importing and exploiting temporary migrants to focusing on developing skills, both of people who were born here, but people who move here and want to start a life here, giving Australia and residents the skills to participate in the economy. We know family domestic violence leave is paid family domestic violence leave is being introduced this fortnight. That will improve the participation of thousands, probably tens of thousands of women in the workforce as well as of course have a massive benefit in their in their own lives. The reforms to aged care recommended by the Royal Commission, simple things that you would think even a Morrison government could have done, but have not even bothered to try, and that is putting a nurse in nursing homes, capping management fees. These are these are fees extracted by capitalists from the provision of aged care services purely as profit. Just taking just taking profit out of the taxpayer's pocket for providing aged care services, which we know have been provided at a shockingly poor level. And, of course, the the, the one that's getting a lot of media attention, um, and I think really kind of the wrong end of the stick media attention, there's a bit of dancing for trots that goes on in the media on this, in my view, uh, and that is that we'll have an emissions reduction target of 43% by 2030, net zero by 2050, and, of course, the the transition of our electrical grid, the new jobs in renewable energy, uh, the investments. When you look at places like WA and Collie, the the huge investment that the WA Labor government's making in Collie to help that community move from a fossil fuel industry uh, base to a renewable energy base provider Huge investment, new jobs. Like it's a, it's a real uh, watershed time, uh, and it does require, I think, labor governments to do it because. Liberals just aren't prepared to do it. And, frankly, the Greens have a kind of, you know, fairyland view of, of how these things will, will happen.
1: Oh, it is, it is only Labor governments that can do this stuff because Labor governments are of, by and for working people and you have to bring working people with you. I'm very excited about another great project, the Hunter Jobs Alliance, where you have this, you know, coordinated integration by trade unions like the AMWU and the great Steve Murphy and uh, organisations like LEAN, the Labor Environment Action Network, that are working together to look at job outcomes to transition fossil fuel communities into job opportunity and economic opportunity. One of my great frustrations, and I say this all the time, Like, obviously, I got very angry about the caravan up to Queensland, you know, the hippies in Teslas experience where, hi, I'm a middle-class person from an urban centre who's never had to worry about my economic opportunities and I'm going to drive my expensive car into your town, which has 20% youth unemployment, and tell you why it's bad to want a better-paying job. Like, what this always fundamentally fails to recognise is that prophecies of hell to come in terms of environmental degradation do not mean anything to people who live in hell already. If you live in a town, as I have in my past, an industrial town where youth unemployment is around 20% and there are no opportunities, let me tell you the last thing you are thinking about is, you know, the threat of burning to death because it kind of feels like a slow-motion catastrophe anyway. And this This is is the thing. We need to mediate conversations to give people opportunities.
0: And and this, Van, is why I think it's so important that, People right across the spectrum of the left understand the economics because because fundamentally, you, you when unemployment is low, when unemployment is low, and in Australia now it's at about three and a half percent, right? When unemployment is low, and government is controlling inflation not through freemanite monetary policy, but through fiscal policy, as John Curtin did, right, by making sure there is productive investments in our economy. Uh, and then you are able to go to communities and say, we are going to change things in a particular way. But because unemployment is low, because the economy is well managed, you can have faith in that change. When when economics basically means at any moment, your insecure job could be snatched away from you, your community could be smashed and you could be left on the, on the rubbish heap of history then people will not support they will not support m- big action on climate change they won't support social changes that might disrupt what little control and comfort they feel they have in their lives and it's why something like the skills and jobs summit is so important because it's about rebalancing power into the hands of working people and communities so that when these big changes occur when we go, actually, we need to make these changes and it will be in everyone's benefit, people can have a sense of trust and faith that those changes will include them. They will have a say in those changes. They will be able to guide and steer them in the best interests of their community. Not that we're just going to shut down every coal mine overnight. You know, and and I want to, I want to say this, you know, Anthony Albanese made this point on 7.30 last night when he was asked about the Greens' position that there should be no new coal mines and no new gas uh, and that they should all be shut down. He made the point that China already isn't buying coal from Australia. Large, you know, We're selling it to other places. But um, that also that it's not a case of we stop selling coal, there'll be no more coal burned around the world. You know, it, it's also the case that, we shouldn't just burn every piece of coal we have. There's actually a, a pathway here that Labor is trying to walk, which says, if we shut down all of our coal mines tomorrow, then then the world will just buy more coal from Indonesia. That's what will happen. And the environmental protections in that country are not as strong as they are here. But at the same time, if we decide we want to dig out every single lump of coal and have it burned on wherever it's burned, that will be a problem. But in order to avoid that, we have to build new industries here. We have to build lithium batteries here, green hydrogen here. We have to do what's necessary to create employment and keep people engaged in the economy. Like it's it's harder. It's harder to be labour than it is to be liberal, where you just burn every lump of coal and cut down every tree, or to be green, where you never have the power to do anything and can say, we're not going to... We, we're not even going to think about the economic ramifications of our position.
1: Or the practical implications of the position. I just love hearing the Greens going, we've just got to stop all collar gas immediately. It's like, okay, not in apocalyptic scenario. You're just going to, seriously, you're turning off the gas in every home right now. Are you doing that in your home? Because I know a lot of Greens who are burning gas at home. Like, yeah. a lot of people with gas cooktops. You know what I'm saying? I'm just like, gas eating. It's winter. <laughs> and it's winter. It's just like, okay. Like, yeah. and it just makes me, I mean, we all, I just find it so frustrating because it is just nonsense scenario land and people going, oh, we're sending a message. And it's like, what, that you're impractical and irrelevant. Like, and can I just, I want to recommend to people who are freaking out in the environment, I'm an environmentalist everybody who listens to this show knows how absolutely fundamentally caught my political being, my environmentalism is. It's not at the expense of my good sense. And if you are one of those people like me who is literally freaking out about climate change, there are channels for your activism. If, if that's... If, if you want to make a productive difference, there are things you can do. I would like to recommend the Labor Environment Action Network, which is um, led by our friend Felicity Wade, who's an extraordinary activist who came from the Wilderness Society. And when I want to save the world and the mechanism is the difficult path to tread through Labor politics and the Labor Party, the Labor Environment Action Network is responsible for the most meaningful practical activism I've ever done in my life. I got to work on a campaign for solar power in Queensland. That solar power now exists. I have actually physically done something as an activist to make the world a better place. Um, You can join on any social media channel, follow their posts, get involved, those things. If you're not a party person, like you don't have to be a member of the Labor Party to be involved in Lane. But I would like to do a shout out for our extraordinary friends from Act on Climate in Victoria who are an environment organisation run through Friends of the Earth and they are fantastic. Their solidarity with trade unions, with community outcomes, with job creation is absolutely matchless and they will find a channel for you to get involved. Again, you can find them, we'll post links. And these are environmental organisations who get that, you know, believing in unicorns is not going to save us. Thinking that there is some magical pool of people out there who will just do all the things you want them to do without your involvement, that is not a thing, people. There are no magical gnomes and going, well, I voted green because I wanted to stop, like, fossil fuel emissions. And by doing that, magical gnomes grew from the ground and they just stopped them. And while I'm going to have this vegan burger that was cooked on a gas jet, like, that's, you know, (laughs) you actually... Changing the world involves your participation, and if it's difficult, it's probably true.
0: Yeah, and look, I have to say too, the 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 work of the trade union movement in this space has been incredibly constructive, even during the years of the Morrison government. And you know that that very early on in the Labor government's uh, term, where Anthony Albanese signed the letter to the UN saying we would uh, adopt a forty three percent target. Uh, of emission reduction by 2030, you know, you had the, Sally McManus, the leader of the trade union movement, uh, you had industry groups, you had um, Farmers Federation, you had environment groups represented in that room when that was being signed. And that, that's that been a long process. And that's my point. The difficult path is to engage people, to, to go through that stakeholder process, to look at what's possible, what's reasonable, so that you can start to do things and then do more things. Unless you start doing something, then you'll never do anything. And I think the the, the union gnomes, Ben. Yeah, well, I think the union movement in this country, you know, right across the board, um, including in industries where there is a reliance on fossil fuel currently, has been engaging in this process, in this dialogue, in in, in working through what the future looks like, and and. Whatever industry you're in, of course, you can join your union at australianunions.org.au, wow, that's W-O-W, because it's through that participation as well that you'll, you'll be able to have a real voice. Then I'm going to move on. Look, you know, it's the second day of Parliament. We haven't even had question time at the time of recording this. We'll see how the Albanese government proceeds. We know there's some those big pieces of legislation. We're looking forward to the Skills and Jobs Summit rebalancing power, you know, changing the the framework and the lens in which we view economics in this country. Jim Chalmers has talked about a well-being budget, which is a huge step change as well. We know Labor's already committed to having a budget impact for women, a statement on the budget impact for women, uh, you know, a whole different approach. Really looking forward to seeing it. But, of course, sadly, while all of this positive stuff is starting to reshape the country, at the same time, the pandemic continues to grind us into the ground.
1: And wasn't that one of the most revealing images from the opening of the new parliament? So Labor and the Greens and their friends magical gnomes. No, the magical gnomes weren't there because they don't exist. The teals were
0: there. The teals were there. The
1: teals And the teals were there. <laughs> they are the teals and magical gnomes. The answer, No. Um, they were wearing masks. They were masked up because yep. COVID is flattening people. I've had it. You've had it. Our mums have had it. Half of Australians have now had it. And the so they were all masked up, but obviously Pauline Hanson wasn't and right. the Liberals weren't. A couple and, of the Liberals were, but mostly the Liberals were not masked.
0: And, look, it's really really disturbing. And for a few reasons, there are some stats here that I think are actually really important that we remember, because I think if these were stats related to any other activity or any other thing occurring in our society, we would be doing everything we could to bring these numbers down. 46% of people in Australia have had COVID. That's up from 17% in February. You know, we're talking about a four month period. We, You know, three times as many people have now had COVID. Uh, there are record numbers of people in hospital with COVID, 5,429 people as of yesterday. That That's almost 100 people more than the previous record. And it's still climbing. It's still climbing. 9% of all hospital beds in Australia are filled with someone with COVID. You know, that means in New South Wales alone, 2,300 people in hospital with COVID. Queensland, over 1,000. Victoria has actually come down a little bit since we last spoke, uh, is down to 855. Places like the ACT and Tasmania might look like they have small numbers in real terms, but per capita, I mean, you consider the number of hospitals as very, very few per capita. They actually have more people with COVID per capita than the the mainland states, the big states on the eastern seaboard. Now, the average public hospital, and this was from the AMA, uh, this nearly knocked me over. I think it's why it's important to think about numbers in context. The AMA says the average public hospital has between 600 and 700 beds. That means that right now, there are the equivalent of eight entire hospitals full of people with COVID. Now, that, is a disturbing, disturbing statistic. Eight public hospitals full of people with COVID. If if that were anything else, we would be absolutely making people wear masks. The Liberals would be up in arms about the situation and demanding more action. Instead, they're putting not wearing
1: masks in the parliament they've and decided to turn it into a super spreader event yeah and they're
0: putting pressure on state governments to not do things you know we know in victoria we know in new south wales the the liberal parties are trying to avoid doing anything that would actually protect people you know in the last 30 days alone 1600 australians have died from covid you know in 2020 there were only 900 COVID deaths. So when the pandemic started and we were all very concerned, rightly so, and we took all these steps and we all wore masks. In fact, we even had lockdowns. Now, I'm not saying we go back to lockdowns, Van, but we all wore masks and we washed our hands and we maintained physical distance. 909 people died. We seem to have abandoned all of that. The Liberals have tried to make it a culture war. The idea that wearing a mask is a culture war has gone me. 1,630 days.
1: Can I be really honest about the mask-wearing thing? Yeah, please. I actually really love it because I feel like a ninja. <laughs> and in city on the trains, I just love wearing my mask. It makes me feel safe and secure. It makes me feel like I value my own life. And I really wish more people had that attitude. I really wish more people decided to put a simple piece of fabric across their faces, showing a public acknowledgement of the value of human life.
0: And can I just say on a personal level, from my perspective, my, my stepmother currently has COVID and is in an aged care facility and that facility is in lockdown, which means my mother can't visit her wife. Um, and we are concerned about what that will mean because we do know that at the moment, many people are dying in aged care facilities rather than being taken to hospital and going into ICU. So even though the hospital numbers are up, ICU numbers are not at their record levels, because in fact, many of the aged care patients are staying in the aged care facilities in lockdown. Now that is very hard, very hard for me, for for our family, but we're not the only ones. Let's be really clear about that. There are thousands, tens of thousands of families around Australia right now who have a loved one in an aged care facility that is in lockdown, that may or may not have COVID. If they have COVID, they're worried about what that will mean for their longevity, whether they might pass away. And if they don't have COVID, they're worried they'll get it. Now, the idea that we're not going to wear masks because we don't like it, and that These family members, these elders, these people who have helped build our nation, who've created us, literally physically created us as people, are now expendable because we don't really like wearing a piece of cloth when we're on the bus or on the train or getting in an elevator. I find it quite sickening. I find it to be the ultimate expression of disrespect for people who have done so much for us over such a long period of time. It's not hard to wear a mask. It's not hard. What's hard is breathing when your lungs don't work. That's hard.
1: Yeah, that's a pretty good way of putting it. No, I really, I do really dig it. Because as you know, I'm a great fan of the fashion accessory known as the hoodie. And I feel I should make a public declaration like I did on Instagram yesterday. I have just bought a new tracksuit. It is a black velour tracksuit. And it looks totally amazing with my little black mask. I feel like some kind of you know, like tactical assassination rapper and I'm into it. Like I'm massively into it. And it's like, I just, a call out to the city of Sydney, the city in which, you know, to Ben's ongoing mockery I grew up in. If you would not feel comfortable licking a chair on a seat on a Sydney train, if you would not feel comfortable dragging your tongue along one of the poles um, in a bus here, if, if you would not feel comfortable rolling your tongue around a button in an elevator at, say, a train station, why aren't you wearing a mask already?
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And obviously, get your boosters as well. You know, the, the nursing union, the ANMF, the, the AMA, which is the, the peak body for doctors, they've all been really clear about this. Wear masks in any kind of indoor or crowded space, physically distance wherever you can, you know, get your boosters. um, And if you have access to antivirals and you get COVID, you should absolutely take them. Like, it's really clear. We've been living with this now for more than two years. I know we're all sick of it. You know, you and I are, are among the many thousands of people who've been impacted. You know, our lives have been turned upside down by COVID really um and and of course we're all sick of it
1: but, we you know, had we had easter like uh, friday week ago because we didn't get to have easter the first time because my mother caught coronavirus on a cancer ward
0: yeah and now we've got people getting coronavirus for a second and a third time likely now a fourth time so let's just do the right thing by each other i always like to sign off the, the weekend wrap with be kind to yourself and to each other Part of that is wearing a mask. It's not that hard. If I get on another train and I see people not wearing masks, I think I'm just going to scream. Not at them, but I think I'm just going to scream into the void that has become the soullessness of people who just don't seem to care about others. Like That's just what I'm going to do. Anyway, that's the COVID situation. It is at a point, I think, where we all want to scream. Um, if you can work from home, that's the other recommendation. Please do try and work from home if you can. We know many millions of Australians can't do that. Their jobs can't be done from home, uh, but we do please take every precaution. That's the other reason to wear a mask. There are people who physically have to be in the workplace and you rocking up unvaccinated and not wearing a mask puts them at risk. Don't be a jerk. Why would you put the person who serves you your food at risk of getting sick? Ah, anyway, let's move on because otherwise we would talk about that forever. Then you're currently in the federal seat of Cook. Cook, of course, quite famously, uh, aside from being the, uh, the, the title given to someone who's not a chef but prepares food uh, and being someone who was himself turned into food by the good people of Hawaii, uh, is the federal seat for which Scott Morrison is supposed to be the representative
1: I thought when you said was turned into food by the people of Hawaii, you were actually talking about Morrison. I think there's a beautiful sort of closed loop around the metaphor of Cook and Scott Morrison. Yes, uh, reporting live from the seat of Cook, not only where my mother lives and where I'm obliged to, to stay with her in this period of her infirmity, but also where I went to high school, big shout out, Port Hacking High School represent. I did take Ben uh, to visit Port Hacking High School. And he was very admiring of the trolleys in the front fence, which the genius or organic talents at engineering and aerodynamics demonstrated by the students of my school. It was literally eight,
0: eight foot in the air impaled on a spike. I mean, that's that was... When you say it was in the fence, I imagine people think, oh, pushed into a hedge. No, no, this was an upside-down upside trolley impaled on an eight-foot spike uh, above our heads. It was really... You know, it was somewhat dystopian. It was. I sm-
1: I just I love my former high school. I'm very proud to follow them on Facebook and see traditions that I myself participated in in that wonderful high school are being maintained. And I would just like to say, my education cost my parents nothing and has got me very very far in life.
0: Well, hopefully, hopefully, it's something you can craft in Fallout Five. Anyway,
1: so mentioning my love of um of all things Shire, not of course without its <laughs> criticisms. I've got to say, I'm not feeling particularly represented by Scott Morrison. Like the, the Sutherland Shire, um, which is, of course, the majority of the seat of Cook, um, is a traditionally Liberal voting place, much to my own alarm um, and sometimes amusement, but mostly alarm. Um, and Scott Morrison, who is obviously originally from the eastern suburbs, was originally a rugby union man before deciding to go to Shark Park and engaging in a bit of rugby league cosplay. Hasn't been here, Ben. In fact, I don't think anybody in this seat, anyone, whether they voted left, right or indifferent, would ever think, oh, I have a problem, I'll go see my local federal member, Scott Morrison. In fact, I have gone past his electoral office numerous times and I don't think I really even know where the door is, despite the fact it's in quite a lovely piece of real estate, very close to Cronulla Beach. Of course, the most beautiful beach in the world. And can I just say... Um, Somebody was posting photos of Scott Morrison recently swimming at Bronte Beach, which is in the eastern suburbs. His office is literally 100 metres from the most beautiful beach in the world, but he went to Bronte instead of Cronulla.
0: Well, I'm not surprised because, frankly, Van, you know, the the latest uh, news is that Scott Morrison has not attended the opening of Parliament, will not attend (laughs) the first fortnight of Parliament. Uh, and has gone to Japan uh, to give a speaking tour, by all accounts. And this, this follows on from a string of behaviours since he lost the election, uh, where he has... This, I think, is his second international trip, um, not related to any form of electorate work, uh, as some kind of, like, global speaking circuit. Uh, and also, in addition to... Uh, a 4,300-kilometre one-way trip to speak at Margaret Court's church, where he, quite famously now, uh, denounced the idea of government, uh, said the UN was not to be trusted, uh, uh, and, and really gave an insight into the underpinning um, ideological values of a man who, quite frankly, has never been fit for office but he's really happy to show us how unfit for office he is now.
1: I mean, isn't he giving it a good go?
0: Yeah, like, it's...
1: he really is. And I, I just it, it is absolutely shocking. The migrant court thing, which you and I have already spoken about was disgraceful. And for those of you who've read my Q and on and on book about mm. conspiracy cults and the cooker community, like the we don't trust the UN isn't, it's not a do- dog whistle to those people. it's a foghorn. Like this idea, conspiracy theorists since the 80s have had this belief in the forces of the new world order where the UN are flying in black helicopters in the middle of the night, you know, replacing white people with brown people. (laughs) Like this is standard conspiracy theory stuff and for a former prime minister to wink to it. And I think it was Crikey, David Hardak has been on Morrison's case. David Hardak was a journalist at at Crikey that revealed a lot of stuff about uh, Morrison's relationship with Tim Stewart and who does a lot of stuff about, you know, the influence of religion, really good journalist to follow. And I think he was making the point the other day that Morrison obviously believed this stuff the entire time he was Prime Minister. Yeah. Like, and he was representing this country at the UN while believing you shouldn't. Oh, well, you shouldn't trust the UN. Well, all this crazy Pentecostal stuff. It's like, such
0: a it's such a contrast, right? So we've just talked about you know Albo getting emotional about the you know the 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 privilege and the responsibility of government, and you know you want to do things that. You, you can look back on with pride, not look back on with regret when you're sitting on the porch at the end of, you know, your, your time on earth ver- versus Scott Morrison, who clearly viewed his time as Prime Minister as, you know, some kind of holy crusade to limit what government does uh, and, and to, you know, basically stop government from acting uh, because government is bad. Uh, like, it was. It's a yeah, real it's
1: marriage of Friedmanite economics and the worst kind of father-knows-best um, right-wing Christian paternalism. That is the Morrison government. That's what it was. And because that was the term that somebody brought up online the other day, this sort of... I think it might have been Ronnie Salt talking about father-knows-best yeah. type religious conservatism, and that Scott Morrison were, didn't have to do anything as Prime Minister because he just inherently had the right to be prime minister because he was a right-wing Christian guy. Like it's just so utterly wrong. And I think it's going to take us years as a country to recover from the Morrison era. And I, I have said this before publicly, most of all the recognition of our own hubris of thinking that it couldn't get worse than Tony Abbott. Well, yeah. I mean, it clearly did. Yeah. And and that I think is on us as a people and on my beloved community of the people of Cook who are legacy liberal voters and I genuinely don't think in conversations I've had with neighbours and friends in the era who do not hold the same political beliefs as I am, rather a lot of criticism of, of Scott Morrison but are almost indentured Liberal voters. And, look, you know, we are people who are ideologically aligned to the cause of Labor. You know, you and I um, believe in those particular ideologies, principles, values and structures. But for everyone... If you don't want your ideology to represent things that are awful and atrocious, engage in it. Yeah, absolutely. Like be part of your ideological community in a proactive and values-driven way that, that has a moral conscience. Otherwise, you do get unhinged loons like uh, who trusts the UN, Scott Morrison, letting QAnon people into curability House and taking themselves off to why Japan or anywhere they really fancy going and having a bit of a swim at Bronte Beach despite the offers in Cronulla.
0: Absolutely. So hopefully, look, you know, I doubt he's going to give up the cushy nature of his position, but maybe he will. Maybe there'll be a by-election. Maybe the good people of Cook will have an opportunity to reconsider
1: their own. And outright. I'm going to say, my friend, Simon Earle, who has visited my young mother uh, as the prospective Labor candidate for the seat of Cook surfer, educator all around awesome guy at Simon Earle with an e um e a r l e Labor on Twitter one of the funniest accounts going says everything about what's good about this area I, I I'm just saying that dude he would be an awesome representative
0: Yeah absolutely look Van let's uh, move on to the good news uh, because there's quite aside from there being a, a Labor government and you know all the good news associated with that, there's some really great environmental news out of the UK.
1: This is one of the stories that I just love. So in the UK, they are pursuing quite um, like an ambitious and incredible rewilding movement. So in Britain, they've looked at the state of their own environment and the relationship of land exploitation, environmental degradation to climate change, like yeah. which seems fairly logical. And rewilding is about looking at um, the ecosystems of Britain and going, well, what did we take out of this that caused a problem? And how can we use like, the the eco- like ecological solutions from this community um, to improve environmental outcomes all around? And one of the things that they're doing, I mean, they have reintroduced wolves into parts of Scotland, all these things. They're bringing back European bison to Kent in Britain. And part of the reason why, so there used to be bison there. Um, yep. Obviously, all the bison were chopped up into bits and eaten and destroyed. But some European bison, European bison, have survived. Um, in a 200-acre area of Kent, in an area that they call it Wild Blean, they have a problem with introduced conifers, which are obviously a form of tree. People know what conifers are, and they've recognised that bison are what's called a, key, uh, a keystone species that European bison in various contexts do a lot of things for your land. They tear down and destroy trees that aren't supposed to be there. They love rolling in dirt, like bison are way into dirt rolling. And because they roll in dirt, their fur picks up native seeds and literally plants seeds for you. They are like the architects of the landscape in various contexts and the way that beavers are and, you know, the oryx, the great bull of northern Europe was... And this is so, this is what they're doing. They're reintroducing bison as a keystone species to this wild plain area of Kent uh, as a means of dealing with their conifer problem and reseeding natural, like natural and endemic plants. It's really exciting.
0: I think it's fantastic. And really, from an Australian perspective, you know, we had that environmental report uh, come out last week. We know that there are challenges here. In, in how our environment has been managed over the last 40 years in particular, but over a longer period as well. So these kind of programs, I think there's lessons for us to learn uh, about the benefits of this and thinking through uh, how, you know, if somebody had said to me, bison help plant forests, I'd have gone, what? But of course, when you think about what actually happens, of course they do. It's a really important and really good news story really really glad to hear it now we are going to finish this episode in under an hour today folks and that means we've got to give shout outs to our supporters the people who make contributions every month $20 a month if you're a cadre supporter $10 a month if you are an Extend the reach cadre supporters do get a, a video all supporters will get emails with
1: yeah cadre supporters got a video of ben and i accidentally in star wars costumes just right <laughs>
0: And there'll be another video this weekend for our cadre supporters as well. So if you're not a cadre supporter and you go, I want to see what crazy wacky video is going to come next, now's the time to go to uh, www.buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. Uh, Become a cadre supporter. And, of course, every week we give shout-outs to our cadre and our Extend the Reach supporters as well. Van, do you have the list there?
1: I do, I do, I do. Okay, so our cadre, at Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, someone, at Jed Carney, Christine Cole, Justin Dando, Tamara James, Bronwyn, Punch Drunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Sam Herrett, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter. Glenn, Robbie, Brash, Daniel, Skyley, Phillips, at Lee Archer, Linda Cartwright, at Leanne Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash, 20, Billy, Tree, McKay, Kara, and Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, at Katagal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hudley, Narungaman, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, also known as Red, White and Blue Lou, and Extend the Reach supporters are... Melanie Dinning, Jodie A not on Twitter, Karen Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, I am into you, Spirit of Anger and Hope, Vicky Hannah, At K Not, love your work. At Didums Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graverse, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nadita Hannum, Bill Collis, Maria Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Belinda Bravo, Sandy Honan, at Calvest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Elian and Andrew, Iva Spillet, Andrew Bryan, Peter O C, Linda, Sam Hadid, Keir Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward at the Real Neville Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, also known as At Not Sandy B, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Adrian Valente, Maritza at Carriedale 68, Frank Nye, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, and Pauline Bate. You guys are the best because we are competing with corporate media. We are competing with the capitalist corporate media who wants to keep our people in chains. Um, obviously, we buy advertising, to promote the show. We have a couple of uh, production expenses. The, if you can make a uh, contribution through that Buy Me A Coffee link, you are helping us stay in the market, stay competitive, find audiences, share our ideas, and tear down the Friedmanite neoliberal hegemony that is causing so many of us unnecessary poverty and hardship so absolutely.
0: absolutely and if you can't afford to make a financial contribution share like review you know we love hearing about people who have joined the union as a result of listening to the show oh, send us those that. stories it's absolutely important that you share this information that you talk to your friends family and co-workers join your union make a contribution share 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 like 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 review 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 that's our show for this week we've come in just under an hour. Love you, Vanny.
1: I love you too. You're the best. And I'll see You're you the tomorrow. Best. Look Bye. Out for the